This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Um, once again, welcome to our first panel of the Reading Villanova series. This series is put on by our Global Interdisciplinary Studies capstone course. And this semester, our course analyzes and critiques the works of primarily Villanova scholars. And we're doing this in an exercise of agency and problem solving within a global and an interdisciplinary context. So for our first panel, we are honored to invite guest panelists, Professor Carol Anthony, Dr. Jerusa Connor, Dr. Brian Crable, and Dr. Jill McCorkle to discuss issues on education and privilege. Um, first, I'll turn the microphone over to our Villanova scholars to briefly introduce themselves and their works. Um, I'm Jerusha Connor. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Education and Counseling. And um, my work in education spans many different issues from students' experiences in what I call pressure cooker high schools to education policy and urban school reform. But I think the piece you read and the work that I'm most steeped in right now, my current book project, is focused on student voice for education reform and educational change and youth activism writ broadly. So I'm currently examining how youth are confronting and contesting state violence, whether we conceptualize that as police brutality, ICE raids, and detention practices that separate families, um, harsh sentencing laws, or underfunded schools, curricula that promote test-taking skills rather than critical thinking skills, the school-to-prison pipeline, the pipeline of inexperienced, untrained teachers who are flooding into low-income communities and schools serving our most needy students, taking away jobs from experienced educators who are committed to those communities. Um, so all of these neoliberal policies and practices that target penalize and further marginalize low-income youth of color. So I'm looking at how youth activists are speaking back to that discourse and ideology, how they're working to influence perception and advance policy alternatives, and how they're really galvanizing social change. So that's the focus of my current work. Thank you, Jerusha. I'm just becoming a moderator. Uh, I'm Dr. Jill McCorkle. I'm an associate professor in the sociology and criminology department. And to be perfectly honest, I don't study education at all, so that would never stop me from commenting on it. Um, what I do study is the legal system and the criminal justice system. And I'm a sociologist who's interested in understanding, in particular, the persistence of uh, racial inequality in this country, as well as class and gender inequality. And one thing that I noticed relatively early on in my graduate studies is that the prison system and the legal system is a major institutional vector of ongoing forms of social inequality. And so the, the piece that you maybe read today is from my book, Breaking Women, that it was asking, at a time during the war on drugs where there was a lot of scholarly attention being focused on what was happening in men's prisons, particularly the explosion in the size of men's prison, prisons and the racial, racial skew in that population, there was almost no commentary on what was happening to women. And yet, 
during the drug war, we saw a historically and globally unprecedented increase in the size of the women's prison population in this country. And guess what? It's actually not connected to women's increased criminal participation, which I was sort of hoping for. I was like, maybe women have gotten more criminal in this country and good for the sisters out there, um, you know, calling for equality on all fronts, including the street. But that wasn't it. It turned out that women were actually being incarcerated for offenses that in the past they would have never been incarcerated for. Uh, so, so that's what my book is about, and it, it also looks at the consequences for women and their families, um, and, and in particular the communities that they're coming from, uh, for this kind of mass incarceration. Um, my current work, so I've done a lot of work at Greaterford Prison looking at um, the role of education in reducing recidivism rates for men who are coming out of prison. And my last little piece, which I'm just starting on right now, um, part of which is with a colleague of mine in the sociology department, Dr. Kelly Welsh, we're looking at stand your ground laws. Um, I've finally gotten to the point in my career where politicians are agreeing that mass incarceration is a problem, that, is, that it's exacerbating various forms of social inequality, particular, particularly racial inequality. And so we have bipartisan support for reducing the size of the prison population. And all of that is a good thing. But I'm looking around and I'm seeing the emergence of these stand your ground laws. And stand your ground does something very interesting, which is it's empowering citizens to use deadly force against other citizens. And the requirements for the use of deadly force are actually lower than they are for police officers. And we're beginning to see very pronounced racial skews in stand your ground defenses. So that armed white men are able to much more effectively claim stand your ground defense when the target of their shooting is African American, African Americans of both genders, but African American men in particular. So at this moment of kind of progress in the criminal justice system, we're also seeing this retrenchment in cruder forms of racial inequality and the privatization of interpersonal violence and racial violence. So that's my, my current project. Thank you, I'm Carol Anthony. I'm from the Center for Peace and Justice Education. Um, I came by way of the philosophy department, so my field is philosophy. My orientation is basically towards know thyself and the world in which we live. The courses that I teach are um, education and social justice. I'm teaching that now. Um, a politics of whiteness class that I teach in the spring. Um, race, class, and gender, I've taught that in summers and also in ACS. I focus a lot on the issues of difference, inequality, and in and through the question of who am I, right? Um, my, if you didn't get anything that I wrote to read, that's because I don't have anything to give you. <laughs> that my field, if you will, is truly in the classroom. And it's motivated by something very personal. And that is, you know, how is it that we are so incredibly unequal in this world and that we do so little to rectify that. It's that simple, okay? Um, a, a huge crisis that I had when I was about 11 or 12 years old was when I saw um, footage of the German films of the experiments done on people in, in the concentration camps. And it was this huge existential crisis that I've never gotten over. And I thought, who are we that we can do this violence to one another? And through the issue of reason, rationality, laws, policies, who are we? Who are we then? 
And I thought, if I can identify in some ways with the Jews and the other vulnerable populations that were targeted, if I can identify with them, and it's only luck that's separating, what about my being separated and just lucky enough not to be in Germany in the 30s? Do I know the type of person I would have become? Do I know the effects that social structures would have had on me? Would I have been silent, turned away? Would I have been a perpetrator of the violence there? So both of those things orientated towards those people who are oppressed, the structures that oppress people, and the extent to which the oppressor can be in us. My, uh, my focus of the past oh, 15 years or so has really been in the area of critical race studies as I believe whiteness is a driving structure for the ways in which we connect or do not connect with one another. Um, so that's the focus of my work. I really, really try to find out um, how it is that good people like you and me, and at this incredible place called Villanova, can, I, can help, not help disrupt, but also maybe inadvertently participate in those structures that are involved in devaluing, denying um, other populations of people. So that's it for work. Hello, I'm Brian Crable from the Department of Communication. Um, and uh, in uh, a lot of respects, what uh, you've already heard, I think connects very nicely with both the work that I do in the classroom and the work that I do in scholarship. Um, I'm interested specifically in rhetorical theory. I do a lot of work on Kent Burke's rhetorical theory. But as in the piece that you all read for, um, for this, I focus specifically on the ways in which we might use his work to understand issues of race in American culture. Um, I became very interested in these kinds of issues being interdisciplinary myself. So I feel like I'm, in a sense, back home when I was in graduate school, right? Y'all are, are engaging the interdisciplinary, and I applaud you for that. Um, my PhD was interdisciplinary in philosophy and communication. Um, so a lot of my work was very interdisciplinary. And I think in the piece that you all read for today, it's sort of like neither fish nor fowl. I'm not exactly sure what you'd call it, but I don't think it's exactly um, what you might call theory. At the same time, I think it really reflects the kinds of things I'm interested in. Um, I became interested in the ways in which um, identity sort of becomes negotiated symbolically, both community identity, individual identity, and then specifically the ways in which that connects to issues of power and privilege. Um, and I'm really interested in the ways in which when we talk about identity, community identity, individual identity, we continually try to support these ideas in something non-human, right? In that which is non-human or natural, right? So our appeals to identity, I think, consistently go back to something not human, right? Something biologically different between us or something naturally different between us that would prop up or, in a sense, take responsibility for um, the categories that we use to understand ourselves. Um, so the piece that you all read for today, um, is from a, a book that I wrote on Kenneth Burke and his relationship to Ralph Ellison. Um, Ralph Ellison, of course, far more well-known than Kenneth Burke. Uh, Joe's like, he's Kenneth Burke, right? Like, she's like, I don't know. Right? But like Ralph Ellison, we all know Ralph Ellison, right? Because like he wrote sort of the masterwork of the 20th century in terms of American literature, right? Invisible Man. What's interesting, and what I didn't know at first, was that he and Kenneth Burke were close personal friends. Um, the reason why I feel like I didn't know this is because the people who study Kenneth Burke tend to be white men. And so it seems as though the white men who study Kenneth Burke don't feel the need to sort of pay attention to sort of non-white people. This is sort of their thing, right? Like, like it's, um, it's 
it's privilege, right? It's, it's, it's white privilege, right? We don't have to pay attention to these kinds of literatures because we can just focus on sort of the colonial world. Um, whereas people who studied Ralph Ellison's work were like, oh yeah, Kenneth Burke and Ralph Ellison were friends, right? So it's sort of something that they knew. Um, so in my book, what I tried to do is actually excavate this relationship to say, how might we sort of um, pull this friendship out of obscurity and then also use that to understand a couple of different things. One is, how do Burke and Ellison influence each other? Right? Because one of the other mistakes that you can easily make in sort of the white privilege vein is, here is sort of the older established white person in Kenneth Burke, who then sort of helps this younger person, right, and sort of passes on his wisdom. Sort of a reverse bag or bands, you know, kind of thing. Um, but that's not actually the way we need to understand that. Relationship needs to be more complex. How do they influence each other? And then the other thing that I try to do in the book is connect that to larger issues of race. So as the two of them were connecting with one another personally, professionally, they were writing things at a time when discourse on race in America was shifting. That's part of what I try to trace in the book chapter, which you all read. Moving from an understanding of whiteness as sort of different kinds of, um, or degrees of whiteness, moving from that to a more monolithic and binaristic conception of race as white versus black, which sort of gets sedimented around the 1940s and 50s. Some scholars argue, I would argue, um, and that shapes our current ways of talking about race. Um, that's what I try to do in the book project. I'm working on stuff related to that right now. Um, more specifically, I'm, I'm doing a couple of essays looking at Ralph Ellison's relationship to Stanley Edgar Hyman, um, their, uh, their Burke and Ellison's sort of common friend, um, and also, I think, now forgotten literary critic. Thank you so much for those lovely introductions. Um, I will now invite these Villanova scholars to discuss <laughs> how, <about it? laughs> how your individual works interact with one another, um, and particularly how these themes on education, the individual privilege and power, um, engage and inform one another within a global space, both geographically and conceptually. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Do you want to go? Well, okay. I mean, it, you know, there's a way in which we're not in conversation with each other. And so this is sort of, a, this is this is the conversation, is, is sort of putting us together in a way that hasn't happened prior to this. But um, there's a way in which there's a very easy connection between my work and, and uh, Jerusha's work. And so, uh, you know, just to introduce at least that element to it. But I, I can, I don't want to like, I'll just do Jerusha. <laughs> I don't want to, <laughs> I, I can see the connections here too, but. Um, one way that I introduce this to, to students is there's a, a early, he's sort of considered a granddaddy of sociology, and his name's Emil Durkheim. And Emil Durkheim made the following insight about crime and punishment, which is this, that there isn't a sort of rational relationship or a tidy relationship between crime and punishment. That, you know, if you go out and ask Americans, why do we punish, most Americans would say, tell me what they would say. Why are we why are we spending all of our tax dollars to put people in prison? Yeah, and, and so like ostensibly we're doing it to reduce crime. And so Durkheim is looking at the historical record in Europe and then also looking in other cultures. And he finds this really interesting um, bit of data, which is there is no tidy correlation. So sometimes we punish severely, crime continues to go up, other times it goes down. But it's certainly not the case that there's a one-to-one -one relationship between punishment and crime. And so he makes the argument that we're actually doing something else when we punish. 
And part of the puzzle in his work is to figure out what that is. The argument that he makes is that punishment doesn't have anything to do with crime. That punishment is actually performing this social function in that it is shoring up solidarity among members of a group. That's what we're doing. And so when we punish somebody, when we, when we render somebody a deviant or, or cause them to be an outcast, it binds us to one another. In fact, we never feel closer to one another than when we're problematizing someone else because we're not that kind of person. So that was an insight from, from Durkheim you know, writing in the early 1900s. And, and another scholar came along, a sociologist, who said, can we take that a step further? That if punishment is actually accomplishing something for the social, it's accomplishing a form of social solidarity, could we say that society creates its own scapegoats? If it's so necessary, if the only thing, think about us as Americans. If we're different by race, ethnicity, we practice different religions, our politics are different, we have different occupations, we're coming up in different uh, environments, we listen to different music, we watch different TV, we read different kinds of books. What holds us together that allows us to achieve any kind of common unity by which we could send a man to the moon or drive down the highway without running into each other? So what Kai Erickson, this sociologist, says is, if punishment's so functional, can we take it a step further and say that we are creating our own scapegoats, that, there, that we make sure that there's a category of people who we can collectively punish, that we accomplish solidarity on their backs. And the number one place that those sociologists look to is the schools. The setup is in the schools. And so we're, we're creating a, a two-tier system, at least, maybe more, um, whereby there's a category of people who don't have a, who don't have a chance from the get-go. And they can be our scapegoats. And we can all feel as if we are a collectivity based on their deviance and difference. Go, Jerusha. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, thank you. Um, you're making me think about many things, but um, Jill's, Dr. McCorkle is articulating this concept called the school to prison pipeline, which, um, are you familiar with this? Yes. So, so you know it's a way of um, disciplining students in under-resourced schools that ends up pushing them out of school and into the criminal justice system. Um, so we have that. But we also have what, what Jill writes about in her book as the new penology. Am I pronouncing it oh, correctly? So good. And this marketization, <laughs> the privatization of the prison, the market-based ideology. And we have that in education, too. And I think they're coinciding. And I hadn't really realized that until I read Dr. McCorkle's book. But in education, it's often talked about as the new reformers or just education reform. But the new reformers promote charter schools, closing chronically underperforming schools, um, policies or practices like Teach for America. Um, and all of these reforms are meant to address the problems of these scapegoats. And the scapegoats that Jill, Dr. McCorkle is talking about, Tell me Jill, it's Jill, much easier. Okay, um, <laughs> are often socially constructed as dependents. They're framed as good but helpless. They're trapped in these underperforming schools. And a market-based solution would be to give them and their parents options to get into these better schools. Or they're seen as criminals. 
who need to be punished and severely controlled. And in fact, in charter schools, that's often what we have. We have um, policies that require students to walk down the halls in silence. There's very little room for autonomy and creativity. There's a lot of drilling and um, remediation in these schools. So it, I think there's this intersection between the prison marketization and privatization that Jill's talking about, the new penology, and this urban reform, which both draw on neoliberal ideology to, as Jill said, scapegoat and create um, privilege among those of us who are trying to fix the problem. Because we, have, we can impose our solutions from the outside rather than working with the community, the, the stakeholders, the people most affected by poverty to generate their own solutions. So I will hand it over. Just a couple of things that I want to say. And um, first of all, that Jill's work, particularly on standpoint theory, is something that we use in our multicultural leadership and dialogue class, which is absolutely invaluable for allowing us to sort of see not just how people have different perspectives, it's not just about that, but those who are in subordinate positions or who are most affected by uh, the dominant group, if you will, that they actually have a much greater potential source of knowledge about the working of the world than do people in the dominant group. Um, and that's absolutely invaluable to know because it means that if you are in a dominant group, if you are privileged, as all of us in some way, shape, or form are here, that we are oftentimes oblivious to the machinery, the inequality that goes into the lives of other people who aren't privileged. I mean, we will talk about the, uh, the cradle-to-prison pipeline, and that has historically been a focus to focus on who has been disadvantaged. But the other side of that is what you and I have been in, the cradle to college pipeline, okay? And we've had tons of social practices and opportunities in place to overdetermine for us getting here. And it's made, it's been made space for by the cradle to prison pipeline. Because privilege is always tied to oppression, always. It necessarily has to be. And many of the changes that occurred here, or that was talked about in terms of uh, policy, in the prison system, in education, is it now it appears as race neutral. But it isn't. It isn't in any way, shape, or form, and is not designed in many ways to be race neutral. So uh, it behooves us in many ways to understand our own privileges and be mindful of what we are missing in society what we gain in many ways because other people are denied. Um, but I see certainly our work um, really interacting with one another and I benefited from both of these folks. Now your work, sir, <laughs> is a little bit more abstract or whatever, but needless to say, you know, but needless to say, I mean, the different disciplines allow us access to things that we can't see or know because of our different disciplines and um, the sort of different strengths that we have. But anytime we're looking for things that are devalued, overlooked, or um, uh, controlled and constructed in some way, that is leads to sort of a better opportunity for us to do things better with one another, and particularly in education. 
Thank you. Uh, I'll try to be, I guess, less abstract. But, you know, like, I, mean, like, I think I think already sort of set me up for that. But um, no, I mean, I think our work definitely sort of fits together in some really interesting ways. Um, and so when I reflect on these questions of education and privilege, both related to the project that you all read and sort of my work in general, um, one of the things that stood out to me was the chapter that you all read focuses on two people, both of whom dropped out of college. Right, so if you think about both Kenneth Burke and Ralph Ellison as college dropouts, um, both of them essentially were saying, I, I have better ways to educate myself than being in a formal educational system. And then thinking about the ways in which they then, in a sense, formed their own perspectives that allowed them to interrogate American society um, in a more complex way, understanding, I think, education in that sense is interesting. And it connects to privilege, I think, in, in a really interesting um, way. Um, and I sort of come at these, these questions both from a Burkean and an Ellisonian sort of standpoint, because I really do see the two of them as fitting together in a lot of interesting ways, right? because as you all read, you know, essentially Ellison sees Burke to sort of have the key to understanding race in America, right? He's like, he, he, he hears Burke lecture and he's like, this is the perspective that I've been waiting for. Now he does things with that perspective that Burke himself is incapable of doing because Burke is a white dude who's blind to his own privilege, right? And so he's, he's uncomfortable with understanding race um, and that, I think, limits him. Whereas Ellison, I think, you know, obviously doesn't have that, that same sort of um, um, white privilege. Arnold Rampersad's argument aside. Um, but so to me, I think the thing that's interesting is to, when we think about education and we think about institutional factors like um, what Jerish and Jill and, and Carol were talking about, um, to me, as, as a rhetorician, part of what I find interesting is the way in which our institutions are embodiments of the ways we think about the world. Right? So these are ways we have of embodying the assumptions we make, the symbols that we take for granted, the meanings that we hold about the world. Now those institutions then also reinforce those, those symbolic structures also. But so to me, the way I think about this in terms of my own work is, why do we do the things that we do? Well, it's because we say the things that we say. Right? And so if there are ways in which education is focused on issues of race in ways that are problematic, in ways that reinforce difference or reinforce inequality rather than undercut them, is it because in America we are wedded to a way of talking about race that divides people up into natural kinds and then uses those natural kinds as a way to not only classify us, but also classify us socially, right? So are there problems with our conceptualization of racial identity itself that reinforces the kinds of inequalities we see when they become embodied in institutional structures? Good. A little less abstract, <laughs> a little less there. abstract. Come on, you can have two more minutes. <laughs> Here, moderator, earn your keep. <laughs> Would anyone like to respond to anyone's points? <laughs> Among the Villanova scholars. Okay, then we'll open it up to the audience to ask questions. No pressure, but you're going to have to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, um, thanks for coming out this week to talk to us. Um, I think that you guys all hit on interesting points of um, identity and kind of res the responsibility <coughs> of privilege, and I wanted to ask you whether you think that Villanova does enough to combat these things that you guys have all been either researching or talking about. Um, and there are a lot of different opportunities for service on campus, but do you think that we are living out our 
Augustinian ideals or the Catholic social teaching as much as we could, especially in our local communities. <laughs> Is this where we pick on Villanova? I'm not, I'm not actually sure. Um, I mean, I guess I'm a white dude, right? Like, I'm the white dude on the panel, so I guess I get to speak for. Um, do I get to speak for Vanilla Nova then? Is that what that means? Like, I'm supposed to speak on behalf of that? I mean, to me, as a white faculty member, this is a difficult question to answer because I don't have the same sort of experiences that non-white folks have on campus. My students who are not white tell me really terrible and awful things about what my colleagues and other staff at the university do from time to time. And there are times when I've said, as a white person, I would like to say that I'm sorry, you shouldn't have had to experience that, right? Because that's actually hateful. Um, so, I mean, I, I have sort of anecdotal moments like that that suggest to me that there are things that we could do better. Um, when one of my colleagues, who's African-American, arrives at the office at 6 in the morning and is essentially hunted down by a member of the, the campus police because that person does not believe that a black person should be in a faculty office at that time in the morning, that suggests that things aren't necessarily like hunky-dory, right? That's what that says to me. Um, at the same time, I think we do have opportunities on campus to, I think, really begin to interrogate what it means to um, take your perspective for granted right? in ways that may be um, disabling or oppressive to others. Dr. Anthony's class would be one of those, for example, right? sort of learning to interrogate what it means to, um, to really think about your identity and the way in which your identity categories are related in ways that are problematic um, or potentially liberatory to others. Unduly negative? No, 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 no. Um, uh, I, we do a lot of wonderful things, and it has been growing in number and in sort of breadth throughout the campus. Do we do enough? Never, never. You know, good people never do enough to like address and change things the way they are. Um, but we have incredible challenges here. And I always subject my students or um, gift my students with reading an article. Depends on how you like the article or not, whether it's subjecting, you know, or gifting. But, um, and Dr. Wall knows quite well about this article. And it's um, John, Father John Sabrino's article on what does it mean to be a Christian identified university? What's the mean, right? Um, and he goes through a bunch of things. It can't just be this, it can't be just that. And so what he says is, like, for the most part, the essential mission of a place like Villanova should be, it should be putting those who don't have the opportunities we have, who are denied dignity, right, who are denied the security that we have, putting them at the center of all that we do. So that what we should not be about is educating you folks and preparing you folks to be successful out there. Why? Because out there's a mess. Out there's full of injustice. It's full of unequal suffering. Um, and that what we should be doing is most all of our efforts should be trying to change the world out there by changing who we are and how we go about things. So that is brilliant. But at the same time, look at how much it costs to go here. And there are just severe economic forces that are in play. That if people, in many ways, knew that we were putting the poor at the center of everything that we do, they probably wouldn't want to come here. It's too disruptive. It's not making people feel comfortable. 
right? And not only that, but we need wealthy people who are going to donate money or come here. So we have to have, we have to have, you know, Villanova has become almost more like the mall. It's like a food court everywhere we go, right? It could be a little better on the food court. Okay, well, it's <laughs> not a great I mall. Feel, right? <laughs> but anyway, so there are a lot of those, are, there are a lot of those uh, stresses and strains. We do things a lot better than we used to. I think we've blown open a lot of the awareness of privilege that is present here and it needs to be changed. Uh, but it's an incredible challenge for us, there's no doubt about it. Well, I echo those remarks. Um, I think, you know, from my own personal experience of Villanova, Villanova has done something that is incredibly unique in the country, which is that we have provided uh, men at a maximum security prison, a state institution in Pennsylvania, the largest one, with a college education. And we have been doing that since the early 1970s. And that is something that has taken incredible uh, fortitude and ongoing vision and commitment to do, because you can imagine um, the sort of politics of providing a college education program to incarcerated men. We have also, um, in, in some of my classes and in Catherine Geddick's classes, we've also taken on-campus Villanova students and had them uh, serve as literacy tutors in the prison. Again, something that the university has um, dedicated itself to, has defended, and has provided the resources to ensure that that happens. And I think those things are um, incredibly courageous and I think they're incredibly progressive. Uh, so, you know, there are, there are elements of this university that I think were really at the forefront of um, trying to undo some of the past injustices and, and um, undermine various forms of social inequality. At the same time, can we do an infinitely better job hiring more faculty of color? Absolutely, we have a long way to go on that. And the same thing with diversifying our student population and also creating opportunities for like critical dialogue among all students. And so that students feel that this is, where everyone feels that this is a campus where they are welcome and where they're a valued community participant and where their ideas and their experiences um, are sort of equally taken seriously and, um, and engaged. Um, I would just add, as many of you know, maybe you came to Villanova because of its reputation for service, but we have a lot of really um, terrific service opportunities, and I want to uh, give a shout out to Noreen Cameron, who's the director of the Office of Service Learning, who works tirelessly to build sustained, meaningful partnerships with programs, and especially um, from my perspective, with schools. Um, she is in constant contact to assess what it is our partners need, what they want from us, and there are many service learning courses at Villanova. Now, um, Noreen knows that I really struggle with service learning. I teach an urban education course and I require my students to go to an urban school so that the issues we're talking about in class come alive and so that we can use what we learn and hear in the urban schools as another text in our course to counterbalance or um, be in, in dialogue with the readings we do. But I struggle with this because there is a tendency for service to reinforce privilege, for it to become noblesse oblige, we are better than you. We, we have something that you don't have, and to deficitize the people whom we're serving, and also because service can let government off the hook in some ways for addressing the problems, the reason we need to go there in the first place, 
to provide these supports because the classes are overcrowded and teachers are spread thin, et cetera, right? So um, I have my students read a, a wonderful essay by two political scientists, Kahn and Westheimer, that outline three different approaches to service learning and three different types of citizens. And there's the citizen who's the personally responsible type who will donate a can of soup to a, a food drive. Then there's a type of citizen who is uh, known as a participatory citizen who will organize the soup drive and try to create change that way. And then there's the socially just citizen who asks, why are people hungry in the first place? What is the root cause here and how can we take action on that? And that's something in my courses I'm struggling to move towards. And so in some, some semesters I've abandoned service learning and done instead something called YPAR, Youth Participatory Action Research, where my students partner with students in the urban schools together as researchers to address the questions that most matter to the students in these urban schools. So we bring our Villanova resources and scholarly expertise and access to um, places like Falvey to bear, and they bring their indigenous knowledge, their um, in-depth expertise in what it's like to be an urban student and to be in an under-resourced school to bear on these issues. And together, we work to not only create new knowledge, but then to take action on the basis of that knowledge. And so that's where I'm sort of heading with service learning, but it is something that I personally as a professor struggle with and think about a lot. How can we do service in ways that, that aren't patronizing, that are helpful, and that address root causes? So thank you for your question. Um, I can't help but notice everyone on the panel is white, and we're talking about education and privilege. So like how, because you're talking about being patronizing and things like that. So how do you balance, <laughs> how do you balance your whiteness with making sure you're not being patronizing in your research and in any service that you do? Yeah, we'll let someone like to respond first. Uh, I'll go. Sorry, do you want to go first? You go but, and I would just say that, Matt, that in many ways it's, it's the, the works I use and deferring to them. I'm acutely aware of both the privileges that I have but the limitations that I have because of that. There are things I don't know, and I need the voices and perspectives of people who don't have the experiences that I have, who can see things more fully. So yes, I see, rather than seeing like people in urban situations as a deficit. I know my whiteness is a deficit, okay? That I am blind to things, I can't see things. Um, I was just rereading an article for today's education and social justice class, and Jerusha, you might know him, maybe not, Zeus Leonardo, mm -hmm. and talking about No Child Left Behind, which was an educational policy, and he was, he was comparing it to an educational policy that paralleled the Patriot Act, which was the get tough, you know, protect America type of thing. And seeing those connections is something I would never be able to do. So my whiteness I bring sort of with acute awareness that I don't know what I'm doing most of the time. <laughs> I, I think that's a great question. Um, 
And uh, to me, one of the things that really sort of stuck with me when I was back in graduate school, one of our professors said, um, he singled out all the male students in the room, and he said, if you allow the issue of gender to only be talked about by your female colleagues, you are doing them a disservice, right? And, and if you think about what that means, right, the idea that, that it is a privilege to be able to say, I don't have to talk about issues of, of patriarchy or gender privilege because like, I'm not a woman, so I can't understand, so I don't have to talk about it. That, that also is a privilege. Um, and I feel the same way about issues of race, right? I mean, um, it gets complex. Like Carol said, I mean, um, I, I know there are assumptions that I make that are tied to sort of my place within American racial discourse and sort of the way I've internalized that. Right? I remember being in class with Carol one time, years back, saying to my students, you know, like when you wash your hair like all the time, and some of my black students were like, no. And I was like, oh, right, right, yeah, yeah, it's different, right. You know what I mean? Like those are stupid things, right? But at the same time, they sort of illustrate the assumptions that we make. But I think if you actually are going to interrogate privilege, you can't leave issues of justice to people who are sort of members of oppressed groups, right? Because the ways in which oppression works is, is it affects everyone, right? And so um, one of the things that Ellison says to Burke, right, is that, that essentially conceptions of race in America have warped white people's ways of thinking, which I think is true, right? White people are crazy, right? Um, <laughs> the things people say, it's insane. So like, you have to be able to engage that and to leave that, say like, well, I, I can't really talk about issues of race because like, I shouldn't let people of color do that. On the one hand, that can be very positive in saying, should I speak right now or should I not speak right now? Right? Should I let someone who actually is a member of the press group speak? Or why am I speaking? But at the same time, you can't sort of let it go with that because otherwise you're denying responsibility for what you are implicated in. Um, and, uh, and yeah, no, I mean, it's a real issue. Right? I'm teaching African-American rhetoric in the spring for the first time. You know, and it's like, that could be a bad thing, right? Like at Villanova, look, we have another white man teaching something about race, right? That could be a bad thing. And so how do you make that not? I mean, it's a real issue. Um, I, just to add to that, I think that, you know, it's privilege to not study race. It's, it's privilege to study race and then not have humility about it as, as in particularly a, a white woman. And so studying race means an ongoing engagement not just with other pedigreed scholars, because that's part of the problem, is that we say people have a pedigree and so then they're authorized to speak on this subject. But that's reproducing a whole set of relations that are entirely problematic. So it means that you have to have the humility to have your work challenged on a regular basis and to know that just by virtue of the pedigree or just by virtue of reaching a certain um, institutional pinnacle, that, that that hasn't given you any sort of layer of expertise on this subject. You really are committing yourself to being a, a lifelong learner. And, and um, you know, one of the things that I said, it, there's a piece I wrote on standpoint theory. And I had, I was, I went into this women's prison. I spent four years doing research in the women's prison. And I was a, a bit of a troubled youth myself, which probably won't surprise anyone in this room. Um, and so I knew some of the women in the prison. And some of the women in the prison, I connected to their stories because I had engaged in some of the similar sets of behavior. And yet, I'm in prison because I'm in, gra like in grad school doing a research project, and they're in prison by virtue of, com of committing a drug crime. And I was really preoccupied, particularly the first summer, with trying to find the similarities between myself and a lot of these women. And I guess I was trying to convince them of our similarities. So I was doing a lot of talking about my delinquency. 
And so this one woman says to me one day, so, all right, you did all this stuff. Why aren't you here? And it just came, and I was already, I was a lefty. I was already very critical. I, I would have been able to speak at great lengths about racial profiling, yada, yada, yada. And when she said that, I immediately said, I don't like being out of control. I, like, I, I don't like being on drugs and, and feeling out of control of myself. And she says, oh, so that's what you think? You think that I'm here because I was out of control? And it was so embarrassing and humiliating because I knew she just like, bang, slapped me down. And I had to think on that for a really long time. But she was right because for all of the like, for all of the sort of intellectual understanding that I had achieved about criminal justice practices being discriminatory, I was still hanging on to this notion that I was where I was because I deserved to be there because of the practices that I had engaged in. And then by default, she was where she was because of the practices that she had engaged in. And so those things never stop, not if you're actually critically interrogating race in this country, which we all have um, an obligation to do. <laughs> yeah. I don't have too much to add other than I would just layer on a discussion of class as well. I think um, when, we, when we think about our research, and Jill and I are both social scientists, so we do a lot of interviews with people, and I work with low-income youth of color who attend what the media likes to call failing schools. And here I am, a white, middle-class woman from an ivory tower institution, right? So I, I come in with a lot of power and privilege and, as Jill said, authority and expertise that's just, you know, granted to me. And I have to acknowledge that when I go into this space and work with these young people to uh, pursue our joint research interests and be very transparent and open about it and have those open dialogues about what not only race but class and these intersections mean for each of us as we come to new understandings together. So that's, that's where I'll leave it. Are there other questions? I just kind of want to build on Matt's question because I think that you all did a really good job of proving why you need to study race and why you need to study, even if you're coming from, a, or especially if you're coming from a place of privilege, why you need to study areas that are not as privileged. But I guess I'm kind of wondering how to effectively do that. Like Dr. Kribble, you mentioned that you're teaching African American rhetoric, and there is definitely a way to do that well as a white professor, and there's a way to do that really, really well <laughs> as a white professor. So I guess I'm kind of wondering, as a student, how do you study and ultimately advocate for groups that are not as privileged um, without kind of being that like outside savior that you mentioned in your opening comments? Mm -hmm. No one wants to touch on <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just go back to, to Jill's point about humility and not assuming that you know what they need just because you've you know read some books or had some conversations with other privileged peers and professors. So I think it is about, um, as Carol talked about, solidarity and really um, respecting the knowledge and experiences that um, 
give each of us understanding. And so working with, not for, the, the people who you want to help is, I think, one step in the right direction. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And uh, you know, in my own work, I study institutions and I study practices. I don't uh, study people per se, if that makes sense. And so for me, a study of the prison is a study of the prison. It's not a study of just prisoners. And in my own work, that's been something that people who are very powerful in the institution didn't understand. Mm -hmm. So they always assumed that I wasn't studying them, and I was studying them. Um, so some of the most damning things in the book are about um, very powerful people um, in the prison as well as uh, politicians in the state. Um, and so I, I think that that's sort of a useful way of thinking about it. And um, there's a sociologist by the name of Dorothy Smith who talks about um, how you would study institutions in a, in a way that um, puts you in alliance with marginalized groups but isn't doing the talking for them. And it is to go to people and say, what, what questions do you have about how things are working? What problems are you encountering on a day-to-day -day basis? And that becomes uh, the beginning of your research question, but that's not where your research stops. You're then you're taking those questions about the world and then working your way up uh, through the institution to try to figure out how those policies got to be there and, and, and why they persist. Um, if I could share an anecdote with you that I sort of shared in a, um, in a workshop that we had or a luncheon that we had the other day, and, and it goes to your question, Megan, because I think that one of the things we in, a, in academia we who are privileged, we, and particularly white people, we love ideas, we love theories, we love texts, and we think that does it for us, okay? I taught a race, class, and gender course this summer. There were eight people in the class. There were four females, four males. Everybody happened to be white. Three of the males were seminarians, right? And so we are t talking all about the social construction of race, class, gender, how it gets instantiated in us, and the machinery of inequality in society. We talk about the ways in which pe people's dignity is robbed through these social constructions and the effects of these social practices. And they were all on board. They were all on board with this stuff. And they really, they got it, they appreciated it. And, um, you know, I, I gave them the questions for the final exam, but I also told them there's a bonus question on the back, but you can't look at it until after you've done the, the final exam. You don't have to answer it or not. And, and the bonus question was that it's like we talked about all these ways in which we get disconnected from one another. We don't acknowledge and recognize with one another. And you folks were on board with all that stuff. And yet every time you came to class, you didn't say hi to each other. You didn't talk to each other. You didn't say goodbye to each other when you left. So our classes are asking us to connect up with people who don't have faces, who don't have names, but who are vulnerable. And you're on board with that, but you don't even recognize one another. So we have to see how a lot of the ideas that we confront, that we love to sort of chew over, gets manifested in us, deployed by us in the way we interact with one another and the expectations that we have with one another. One of those sort of transformative moments that I had too in my learning process, you know, of, of not that far long ago, was Arturo Madrid's article that said, listen folks, mostly education is about socialization. 
you are learning how to be in a world that is going to sort of reinforce your behavior, not asking you to ask questions or do things differently. And it's like, I never would have thought education that way, was that way. So we have to really think creatively and, and not just go to ideas, but see how they live in the world in us also. No, yeah, I, think, I think you asked a great question. Um, and uh, I'm hoping in the spring to do it the right way and not the wrong way. I should, I should actually say. Um, I think your question is a really good one. But to me, I, I think this is the way I approach it. And it may be an idea kind of thing. Abstract. <laughs> Why perhaps. no? We need ideas. No, 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 we need I'm ideas. not saying. But, but I mean, to me, I think what, it, what you're asking is, is um, maybe not necessarily the first step. Right, because to me, I think if you are sort of thinking about how you are relating to other people, like how can I do this without sort of re-inscribing privileged or oppressive relationships to others? I mean, to me, the question becomes, how do you interrogate your own perspective to the extent that you recognize all the things that you take for granted as real that are actually constructions that systematically benefit and oppress you and other people, right? So to, to use a specific example, how can we begin to interrogate the taken for grantedness of the categories of sex? Right? Male versus female. Right? It seems like, well, you're born, you fall into one of the other categories. What if we recognize that instead as a categorical system that we have internalized and taken as the way in which nature tells us to divide itself up? Right? As though like our bodies themselves are sort of saying, like, this is what it means to be male, and this is what it means to be female. Right? Our bodies don't say that. Right? We are attempting to use categorical systems that map onto the natural world in ways that we hope are real. Our bodies aren't actually sort of perfectly aligned with these categories, right? The trans movement indicates the ways in which a binaristic understanding of gender is problematic. How does a binaristic understanding of gender work to privilege heterosexuality, right? By dividing people into one kind and another kind, we can then tell people these are the kinds that are supposed to go together. Right, so how do these constructions that we take for granted and that are materialized in things like your driver's license and your birth certificate, right, and bathrooms, right, uh, dress codes, right, all these things, um, how do those work to both make us feel like the categories we hold to be true actually are real, and how do those work to continue the kinds of oppression that we're hoping to alleviate? And you can say the same thing about race, right? So, so when I've taught courses on race and had students read things about the history of racial discourse in the United States, like students, it's difficult for them to recognize that the things that we see are a product of the ways that we communicate, right? So we see racialized identities in the way that we do because we talk about race in the way that we do. And when we talked about race differently in the United States, we saw bodies differently, right? So when we talked about race in such a way that Italians were seen as not white, right, or dark-skinned, physiologically dark-skinned, they were perceived as having dark skin. Right? And when you can begin to, to sort of untangle all the things that you take for granted that are central to your identity, right, and, and maybe your conception of what the world is like, like I think then you can begin to, to ask further questions, which is, is it the case that American society actually is um, fully and wholly from a white perspective, right? Ellison wants to argue American society is black culture, right? Like blacks are central to American culture. And to believe as though there's like white culture and black culture is to make a whole series of problematic assumptions about race and nature of the United States. Um, and then, then that falls into then your relations with other people. Um, maybe abstract. No, no, no. Good. I'm looking at you every time. Like, is that abstract, Karen? <laughs> right, Mom. Is that abstract? Right. 
Um, I've been looking at a lot of college applications lately again, and it's hard to overlook this now that there is an emphasis on diversity in a lot of the college applications. And it's like it's ideal to be diverse for um, many colleges and universities. And it just makes me wonder what the education system is trying to tell us through that. Is it trying to tell us that um, being diverse is a privilege in itself, or it's the education system telling us that we're using our privilege to tell you that you're privileged as well? Hmm. I just want to know what you think about that. Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, I don't, I don't know this literature inside and out, but I know there, are, there is research on heterogeneous campuses, campuses that have a lot of diversity and um, the learning outcomes for students being superior in those, in those uh, campuses. So I think there is an empirical benefit to a diverse higher education context that perhaps is factoring into the marketing that you're seeing on these college um, admission brochures and whatnot. But I think you know, we, we also need to step back and say, OK, well, colleges are trying to promote diversity, but how are we doing that in our K-12 school system? We had Brown versus Board of Education declare separate is not equal. And yet we are currently in a state of hypersegregation. We have um, schools that Gary Orfield calls apartheid schools because they have less than 1% of um, majority you know, white students in these schools. Charter schools have exacerbated and fueled this hypersegregation in urban communities to a large extent. And so are we then looking at colleges to rectify this system that we've created that does not allow students from diverse backgrounds to get to know and talk to each other? I don't know. I don't, I, my area is not higher education, but um, I think we do need to look at the K-12 system and the, the racialization of it and how current policies and practices are contributing to it. Um, I'm sure my colleagues would have something to say about the the admission application. I, I would just only material. say, because sometimes I hear this get um, misattributed, but I, I don't think that you did it, but diversity is a condition of groups, not individuals. Um, and you know, the other thing that's valid, valued, of course, in, in uh, college applications is our legacy. And it would be interesting to kind of look at um, you know, how we sort out percentage admission legacy versus the extent to which we're trying to engage. And you know, like as colleges are framing this, some are, are, are doing it narrowly, some are doing it more broadly, so diversity um, across across race ethnicity, diversity across national origin, diversity across um, you know a whole set of religion, etc. Um, so I just wanted to like add that as a definitional. Thing. Mm -hmm. And I would I would just like to add too. Several years ago, we had um, a Dr. Martin Luther King keynote speaker, and her name was Sonia Doug, uh, Douglas Horsford, and she's written a book that I use in the education social justice class, and it's Learning in a Burning House. And one of the things that she claims is that, that despite the desire of, uh, or the law of Brown versus Board of Education to desegregate, that the desegregation is not the same as integration. 
And in many ways, adding more different colored M&Ms to the bag doesn't make it more diversified. If you don't change things structurally, if you don't have different people in the classroom as professors picking different sort of um, different texts and approaching things in a different way, then you don't have integration. What you have are just sort of a different you know, mix of people, but the structure is still the same. So I would, I would just sort of add that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess, uh, in some ways, I guess I would ask, is it that the, the schools are promoting or advertising themselves as being diverse places, or are they recognizing that diverse appeals are powerful and so they simply Photoshop people or have particular <laughs> students singled out on campus and placed on those things, right? So is, is it that this is really a thing about the college's actual diversity or practices of diversity, or is it about their desire to appear diverse in ways that they see to be saleable? Mm -hmm. um, I just was interested, it was mentioned in the beginning about like, Teach for America, what your thoughts are on like years of service or like students getting like, six weeks of training and being thrown into these schools to teach kids typically in lower income neighborhoods and um, how privileged they do that. Um, I don't think I've been subtle about this, have I? <laughs> um, yeah, so I have a lot of grave concerns about Teach for America. In Philadelphia, as you may know, uh, Teach for America teachers, or the organization has an MOU with the district, which means it has a, a long-standing memo of understanding that a certain number of Teach for America teachers will be hired each year and placed in these um, underperforming, they call them failing schools. And a few years back, we had this crisis in Philadelphia where we had a shortfall of $304 million and several thousand teachers were laid off. And yet, Teach for America teachers got to keep their jobs. And this meant that trained, experienced educators from the community lost their jobs so that um, privileged college students could parachute in for two years and learn how to teach on other people's children and further exacerbate the revolving door of teachers that we have in these under-resourced schools because they are really difficult places to teach. And the salaries aren't great in Philadelphia compared to out here in the suburbs. And this revolving door, you know, fueled by things like Teach for America, creates great instability in a school institution and little hope of building a strong foundation among the faculty and cohesion among them on which to build. So there are, there are many concerns I have with Teach for America, but I will also just tell you about an alternative to it that I think has a lot of hope, which is the Grow Your Own movement. This started in <laughs> Great Il <name>. Illinois. Yes. <laughs> Grow Your Own Teacher. Don't get excited. Believe what I'm saying. It is Colorado. A policy effort to work with community-based institutions to identify high school students who are interested in teaching 
who are committed to their communities, care deeply about their communities, and to forgive their college tuition if they go on through a you know accredited education program and to provide them with supports all the way through, which might be childcare supports, might be um, you know further tutoring, whatever kind of supports they need to ensure that they're successful. And then if they complete six years of teaching in their community, again, they won't have to repay any of the, the college um, loans they were given. And so this is an effort to create a pipeline of teachers who are well-trained, who come from and care about and are committed to the community, and who will stay in the profession. So that's an alternative approach to something like Teach for America. Anybody else want to? That's all you. <laughs> okay, do we have any final questions from the audience? All right, I guess the final question for wrap-up is um, within the Institute of Global Interdisciplinary Studies, one of our main goals is to achieve responsible global citizenship. So most of our questions have been touching on the domestic level and the university level, but how do your ideas inform global citizenship and work within government? So yes, my work focuses on the US context, but as I um, said earlier and wrote about in the piece, I'm really interested in youth activism and how youth speak back to neoliberalism. <coughs> And neoliberalism is a global phenomenon. You see it from Chile to Hungary, from Canada to the UK. Um, and youth activism is also global. And there have been a lot of really powerful student-led social movements, protests around the world. And so I see my work as interdisciplinary and as something that's having global uh, reverberations and resonance. Um, I, I think, you know, there's two things in the, in the literature on punishment. One is that we know that the US has been um, relatively successful in exporting its model of crime control to other countries. Um, and at, so you see this uptick in incarceration globally. It's nowhere near what it is, as pronounced as it is in the United States, but you can see an uptick elsewhere. Um, but at the same time, there's an argument that punishment in the United States is very much connected to our uh, legacies emerging, of racial inequality emerging out of slavery. But there's something unique about uh, the criminal justice system that is connected to our own uh, racial past. And so it makes um, doing a lot of, of global comparisons and cross-cultural comparisons with other criminal justice systems particularly compelling. How much of what we are seeing in the US will actually ha have resonance elsewhere or is just a, a fad? And, and that's work that I'm looking forward to doing in the future. <laughs> um. You know, given the structure of privilege, and particularly white privilege, as being sort of blind to thing, and the assumption that what we have doesn't cost anybody else anything, right? That we are innocent, what we get is because of our own merit, and there is no cost to other people. Well, everything that we have does indeed cost something to other people elsewhere. It's not an accident that in many ways we go elsewhere for cheap labor now. So even the fact that we have, um, we like bananas that have no spots on them, that has come at a cost of incredible sort of retardation in areas in Latin America because of the fertilizer that has been used and that um, 
that land has been taken from people. In many ways, we've got to see how what we have is indeed connected up with other people who don't have. And we have because they don't have. So there's no way to get away from really being a responsible person and ignoring the extent to which our lives are connected with people all over the planet. It's a lot of responsibility and much about privileges. We, we want to be comfortable. We want it easy, right? Even our responsibility, we want it to be more easy. But um, breaking out of that is a tremendous responsibility and, and it's a lot of work. But um, needless to say, it's worth it. I would just add, like, I, I do primarily a lot of my work on issues of, of race in the US. Obviously, issues of race, or not even maybe necessarily race, but certainly issues of oppression of those seem to be different is something that's not confined to our country, right? Um, and so there are ways in which you can look at the connection between our conceptions of race and those in other countries or understand sort of the, the legacies of, of slavery both here and, um, and elsewhere in the world, um, US slavery. And at the same time, I guess one of the things that I've been pondering more and more as I think about this issue of the global is again this idea of the things that we take for granted as natural that are sort of symbolic constitutions, right? So we think about not only the United States as, as some sort of naturally existing entity, right? As though sort of like the geography itself sort of said, here is where the nation should be. Oh, and also Hawaii, right? As though like this is somehow like some sort of natural thing as opposed to a legacy of a great deal of, of genocide and colonialism, um, right? That's something to sort of consider, as well as also the belief that I believe in the United States we tend to take for granted, which is that the nation state is the ultimate political um, development in human history, right? As though like the world is sort of naturally divided into these different nation states, and what we can do is sort of think about how they relate to one another, and these ones are at war, and these ones are not, and these ones are, are uh, trade partners, and these ones are not. But understanding the legacy of dividing the world up into nation states and thinking about ourselves in those terms, well, that's not inevitable. That's something that is very historically um, conditioned and that has certain um, legacies, like post-colonial legacies um, and consequences. So how is it that the things we take for granted in terms of how the world is divided up, how might that also sort of need to be interrogated and need to be questioned? <laughs> All right, thank you so much to our panelists and to our attendees, and we hope to see you again at our second panel of Reading the Land.